Hello everyone and welcome to the Information Entropy Podcast, where we try and take some science, squish it into an hour-long show, hopefully making it less confusing than it was at the beginning. This week we are continuing our series on space. If you missed it last week, we were looking at the search for extraterrestrial life. And the weeks before that, we covered conkers, moons, suns, gravity even... But today we are turning our attention to space, weather, and astrobiology. You can follow us on Twitter and TikTok at information, no, at InfoEntropyPod. Instagram is InformationEntropyPod. And of course, whichever directory you're listening to this on right now, if you can give us a like, a rating, a share, a comment, whatever it is, we appreciate it absolutely massively. I'm Tom Jenks, joined as per usual by Mitchell Gatting. How are you, mate? I'm doing good, mate. We haven't spoken in so long. Oh, it's been a very, uh, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How you yeah, still battling the hangover. <laughs> uh, oh, well, you've had a hangover for a week. Uh, an entire week. Entire uh, no, week. subsiding now. It's fine. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, in general, doing all right. I'm still uh, prepping to leave, hence why we're doing our space saga, which mm-hmm. this will be the fourth episode of. And... Uh, yeah, I should be, when this goes live, I should hopefully be back in the country. Okay. Unless things have gone Wait, horribly, horribly wrong. What can you not say? It's, 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 a, um, it's a secret. No, I can say, <laughs> I was, I'm going back to Italy, do some field work ah. with my animals out there. Um, your, your boys. With my boys and gals. And yeah, just collecting some last bits of data for the whole PhD side of things. Uh-huh. And then Spain for a conference, Wales for a conference, do some presenting of show. said uh, results. Uh, so, yeah. And then you're a doctor, yeah? Is that how it works? And then I'm a doctor. Now, we're still, we're still a, a few months away from that. Well, Only about a few a months? year, let's say. Well, say, oh. January is technically the end of my uh, funding for now, but we'll see whether that gets extended or not. Um so yeah. So, it, so wait. So I'm, I'm confused. So your funding, if that runs out, and you haven't, like, when did, uh, what's that, what's that like the uh, the relationship between funding and you getting your doctorate? Um. So the university has a it's kind of a soft policy on like a four year limit for completing your PhD. Uh huh. Funding is normally three years with like six months extensions. Mm-hmm. Or they're just three and a half years to four funded for four years. It depends on how you're funded, who's funding you, how you apply for it, what your outputs are expected to be, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but technically, you could just you know do it for as long as you want it, as long as you get to your like defense and you've handed in your chapters and you know pass the exam. But a lot of people like run out of funding and then just kind of finish it in uh, their their own time okay. within that like month or two period but ideally you're doing it within the funded period um, right mm. so you know you can actually live whilst <laughs> doing these things yeah uh, bit hard to do that to you know do the whole living thing without funds just a little just a little difficult just a little difficult, um, just a little difficult. so yeah come January we'll see if I'm panicking. Um, so yeah, stick around, find out and watch my <laughs> slow descent into chaos. If for no other reason, just for that. Just for that. <laughs> so, that. Um, so yeah, today carrying on our space series as we episode number four, as we mentioned at the top mm. of the show, uh, last week was, you know, we literally recorded this five <laughs> minutes ago. And it has escaped my brain in this very minute what we spoke about for an hour. E.T. phone home. Ah, E.T. phone home. Yeah, the search for extraterrestrial life. Fermi paradoxes. Yeah. uh, Drake's equations. Um, Yeah, it was a good time. I really enjoyed that topic. Uh, Gets me going. Good time. Yeah. (laughs) This week, though, we'll turn our attention to space weather. Bringing back the solar flares from the seventies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. get some flares on the go, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see where we end up. 
Um, but I've got some news. Oh, yeah. Okay, what's the news? Um, so it kind of, well, it doesn't relate to, you know, a few weeks ago, we spoke about the zombie viruses and ways that certain fungi or parasites will control their host. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine that, right? Um, but it was trapped in permafrost for 50,000 years. And then some scientists went, oh, I wonder if that can still infect living things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they did that. Um, and it can. Oh, nice. That's yeah. always the best. So that's exactly what you want to be hearing about, um, mm-hmm. 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 I think. And it's I, I don't even know why they kind of went, oh, yeah, we should... We found this zombie virus type thing, but what could can they actually affect things? Um, well, that's a question they didn't need to ask, but they did. Uh, they published this on February 18th um, mm-hmm. in the journal Viruses. Makes sense. Um, and they're, they're making the claim that zombie viruses are not a, p- a massive public health threat. But that, that's kind of where we are. And I think it's just kind of a quick update to be like, oh, look, more once in a lifetime events. <laughs> that are on the horizon for us these days. Yep. Um, so yeah, if you hadn't come across that, there's your daily dose of existential dread from this podcast. Yeah. And I didn't want to go m- much uh, deeper than that because sometimes we spend ages on on news, and uh, I feel bad about that. it. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Tangent central over here, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what have we got on the agenda today? We spoke, we touched on space weather a little bit a few weeks ago. Yep, we did. Um, we were back to give it our full focus and attention here today. So, why did why don't you kick us off with uh, something that tickles your fancy? Um. Ooh, do you know what? Uh, do you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go throw it back to our first one and talk about solar flares because well, it's one of these that was left over from our, from the research in that episode because we did a lot on solar. If you want to find out more about solar, go back two episodes and we go all about the sun and the different stages of suns and stars, and binary yeah, stars, and massive stars. Yep, as as a as the sun as an SI unit, which it is. For all other suns, good old sun, yeah, stars in the galaxy. We uh, we use our sun. Um, I still wonder whether that will change <laughs> as we discover more suns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And over time, it will reduce. So does that mean like there's a relationship between it reducing and everything else increasing? Oh, maybe at the time of announcement, that's what it was. But okay, yeah. The mass of the sun is this SI unit, but only from when we made it one in like 1974. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really but there, there, is, there is tonnage behind it. They weren't just like, it's one sun and that's it. There's actually like grams and that the kilograms ain't going to change. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's good. Yeah. It's 1.989 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. Well, just a few. Just, just, just a few. It's like 33, no, 333,000 Earths. Which is an impressive amount. Yeah. So off the back of that time, what what is a a solar flare? I mean, before interject, as you all all do, I'll let you know. A solar flare is an intense burst of radiation coming from the the release of magnetic energy associated with sunspots. Okay, so they're always associated with sunspots? Yeah. Okay, cool. So flares are solar system's largest explosive events, if you didn't know. Uh, events, not vents. They are they are seen as bright areas on the sun, and they can last from minutes to hours. And we typically see a solar flare by the photons, which is light to us ordinary folk. They releases at almost every wavelength of the spectrum, so white, pure white light. And the primary okay, wave yeah. monitor flares are in X rays and optical light. So they also are. Uh, Flares are also sites where particles, so electrons and photons and heavier particles, are accelerated into space. And at us. Yeah. 
And the way they happen is they're not like, they're not like a build up underground of like a reaction and it, it explodes. The way that it actually happens is when intense magnetic fields on the sun become entangled, uh, they act like a rubber band that snaps when it's twisted too far. Okay. And the, the tangled magnetic fields then releases all this energy with a snap. And that's when you get all the... Um, and that like e- flicks ejection. up the... Yeah. Okay. So do you know when we were kids, there was like rubber discs that used to turn inside out and used to leave, like the poppers. And used to like hit the floor and then jump into the air. Oh, yeah. Imagine that, like elastic, like the elastic energy, but it's caused by just mag- magnets and magnetic oh, fields okay. twisting. And because all the particles coming out of the sun are charged, they just kind of get trapped up in that and slingshot out into space. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. But what pretty I scary think people, as well. A lot of people, what people get confused is solar flares and solar prominences. Prominence okay. So, so a solar flare is like this, just, um, it's just a burst of radiation, but a solar prominence is those, um, uh, it's also known as a filament when viewed against the solar disc is a large, bright feature extending outwards from the sun's surface. It's like, a an anchor. Oh, like you see those yeah. arches. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. That's what I had going yeah. on in my head. So that's yeah, wrong. No. That's, that's wrong. So prominences are anchored to the sun's surface in the photosphere, and they extend outwards into the sun's hot outer sphere called the corona. Uh, ooh, am I allowed to say that word? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then a, a prominence forms over the time scale of about a day, and a stable prominence may persist for several months, looping hundreds and thousands of miles into space. And scientists oh, wow. are still researching how and why prominences are, are formed. Okay. So the solar flare type stuff is kind of a sudden burst rather yeah. than a prolonged thing. Yeah. So the, the, yeah, which is why it fires stuff all the way to Earth. And when we get when you talked about the aurora borealis, yeah, is those electrons interact with our magnetic sphere and form bright, pretty lights as they are excited by the atmosphere. Um, yeah. yeah. So because the sun is so magnetically charged which is kind of surprising um Mm -hmm. but because just all of the part even though you know there's not a lot of metal going on there which we associate with magnets right Mm -hmm. um on a human level all the particles atoms molecules well atoms in the sun right um are so charged that it creates a massive magnetosphere called the heliosphere i think and the boundaries of that heliosphere kind of denotate the demarcate the edge of our solar system and it goes mm-hmm. way beyond you know all of the planets so we are within this heliosphere this magnet uh, magnetic boundary and the solar flares will kind of travel down filaments within that because the sun's moving so much like it's not like a uniform gradient of magnetic forces there are kind mm-hmm. of like currents going through the solar system, if you can imagine it in that way. And mm-hmm. so the particles will travel down that filament and sometimes just smack Earth on the face. Mm-hmm. Right on the but chin. luckily, right on the chin, just takes it like an absolute champ. <laughs> but luckily, because we've got a magnetosphere as well, because we've got an iron core that's molten moving around, that protects us from these solar flares. And yeah, as Mitch said excites atoms and makes the sky green and pink and purple and pretty mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh why well, for- forgot or i don't know if i just forgot or didn't know is that the sun goes through solar cycles which will increase the activity of solar flares or not right did you see this it's one of those things I always forget um, so the solar cycle is an 11-year sun cycle, or also known as a sunspot cycle. So if you've mm-hmm. heard of sunspots, they're large patches on the sun that are really linked to high levels of magnetic uh, activity. It's a natural cycle that's approximately 11 years uh, long, and the number of sunspots on the sun's surface increases and decreases. Uh, 
within a semi-predictable pattern within this time. So the more sunspots there are, the more or the higher buildup of magnetic field there is in that area of the sun at that point. They're cooler than other areas of the sun, and that's why I think we can detect them fairly easy with uh, thermal imaging and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the solar cycle is driven by the sun's magnetic field, which becomes more and less active over time. And during periods of high activity, there are more sunspots and thus more uh, solar flares and other solar weather events, which we'll mention later in the show. And it seems like one of those weird things, like, does it actually affect us? But we kind of have to be conscious of it, right? If we know we're in a high uh, period of high activity in that cycle, then we're going to be hit by more solar flares. And that sometimes does interfere with stuff going on down here, Mm -hmm. uh, depending where you are. Get your Faraday cages out, you know? (laughs) Protect your goods. (laughs) Protect your goods. Yeah. Yeah. So, sun cycles. The sun has seasons, uh, but it's just 11 years long instead of one. Yeah. Always uh, good to keep in mind. Yeah. So, my last thing that I was going to talk about. Before you interject it. Um, oh, <laughs> coronal, uh, coronal mass ejection. CMEs. CMEs. Yeah. Which, they're, they're, they're all very similar, but all very different. So CME is an explosive outburst of solar wind plasma from the sun. I'll explain a bit more about solar winds in a bit. But a blast of CME typically carries roughly a billion tons of material outwards from the sun at speeds on the order of hundreds of kilometers per second. It's a lot. Like every time something like this is mentioned, it blows my mind. And then I realise, oh wait, I just can't actually fathom what's going on. Because <laughs> like, like, it's a, quick. <laughs> In your head. <laughs> billions of tonnes of material are ejected from the sun. And these things happen yeah. fairly often, I imagine. Mm-hmm. At the same time, from our episode a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how much material the sun burns through a second, which is in the billions of work as well. So... Mm-hmm. How, the, the sun must be massive. I know this the is not news to anyone, but my it's huge. It's absolutely humongous. Yeah, that was that was that was my interjection. Carry on. <laughs> mind blown as always. It's all right, man. It's all right. It's all right. Um, so, a coronal mass ejection it contains uh, particle radiation, mostly protons and electrons, and a powerful magnetic fields. And these blasts originate in magnetically disturbed regions of the corona, which is the sun's upper atmosphere, hence the name. So, most SMEs, CMEs, I'll say SMEs, because SME, so SMEs in my line of work is either <laughs> small to medium enterprises or subject matter experts. It's SMEs, CMEs, coronal mass ejections, CMEs. Um, they mostly form over magnetic active regions on the surface of the sun in the vicinity of sunspots, and CMEs are often associated with solar flares or another type of explosive solar storm. However, CMEs and solar flares don't always go together, and scientists aren't exactly sure how the two phenomena are related. It's always fantastic. Oh, uh, CMEs are much more common during solar max phases of the sunspot cycle, as you explained, and when sunspots and magnetic disturbances on the sun are plentiful. So CMEs travel outwards through the solar system, some are directed towards Earth, though though many others miss our planet completely. The radiation storms, which are part of CMEs, can be hazardous to spacecraft and astronauts. It's like the rate of radiation. People don't realise when you're in space, you're under a lot more radiation than you would be, you know, down here in the Earth, because you're you're out there, you're being protected by the atmosphere. It's surprising, like, how well air protects us from so much horrible stuff in space (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. um the radiation storms which are part of the cmes can be hazardous as i said to spacecrafts and astronauts if a strong cme collides with the earth's magnetosphere the disturbance can trigger a series of events that send a burst of particles to the earth's upper atmosphere as the radiation crashes into the gas oh that's where you get the northern lights you know i got got it wrong i apologize solar flares don't cause that 
CMEs calls that. Okay. The Northern Lights and the Southern Lights. Yes, Borealis and Australis. Yeah. Still so on the lookout. Said... Still haven't seen them. <laughs> so, the, the like so the next session is effects on the Earth, and we, we yeah. talked about a bit more bit about it. And you you actually asked like what what does it actually what happens. What, yeah. what happens to Earth when all of this, all these different solar particles, such as like high-speed solar wind, solar uh, energetic particles, the solar flares impact Earth only when they occur on the side of the sun facing Earth, which can be rare because the sun. You're, you've got to think of how big the sun is compared to Earth. It'd be like, isn't it like a football field away and being able to throw a dart? At uh, the, okay. Yeah, and at the it, that's a good analogy for sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it's very like we, we speak about these things like oh yeah, all the all the times we're hit from the sun. Well, it's not like aiming at us; it's just chance, you know. <laughs> no, uh, the sun's got a vendetta against the yeah, Earth. <laughs> just just us specifically. Yeah, there was a. I remember watching something a while ago, which was if it was strong enough of a solar wind or an explosion, it could essentially just rip our atmosphere off. Oh. Cool. Because it would have, to, have be to be like a direct hit though? Yeah, yeah. It would have to be yeah. direct and it would have to be like an explosion or something or solar wind that was powerful enough to overpower our magnetosphere. But if it could, you could essentially just rip the atmosphere off of... It was one of the ideas that what happened to Mars because they said it had a weaker atmosphere because the yeah. gravity is weaker. That there's a possibility that it actually just like blew away into space. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, that brings us quite convenient onto space weather. Space weather. Space weather. Um, yeah. Unless there's anything okay. else you want to talk about the sun. Not really. Okay. <laughs> I was All just right. going to explain very quickly about like. Um, our magnetosphere like if you've ever seen magnets in action or like the done have you ever you, we did the iron filing thing at school right where you put like a yes. magnet in a tube that's got iron yep. filings around it and you can see the magnetic field yeah like if you imagine earth we should have a spherical magnetosphere because well one it's called a sphere you know <laughs> Um, but actually, it's not spherical at all because mm -hmm. the sun is blasting this stuff at us all the time. Uh, the Earth's magnetosphere is actually warped, so it's okay. slightly dented facing the sun, and then it's got a tail facing away from the sun. Um, and then that's how the different particles get channeled to the poles. Okay. Um, so yeah, if a big enough solar blast did come in, considering our magnetosphere is already distorted, um, it would just yeah rip it off, as you say. Rip it off. Yeah. Uh, but yes, space weather. What's going on with space that? What's the weather what forecast? Is, what is going on with space weather? Um, <coughs> I don't know with space weather. So <laughs> it wasn't actually coined too long ago, you know. And it is it's used to describe the dynamic conditions in the Earth's upper space environment in the same way that weather and climate reverse the conditions in Earth's lower atmosphere. So space weather includes any and all conditions and events on the sun, in the solar wind, in the near-Earth space, and in our upper atmosphere that can affect space-borne or ground-based technological systems and th through these human life and endeavour. So the Okay, so it's based around Earth, but yeah. source can be anything that's not earth yeah so it's like the effects okay. and um it's called heliophysics is the, the science of space weather uh that makes sense if we're in the heliosphere of yeah. the sun yeah so yeah and it's it's absolutely crazy because you know it, it may look like you, one of the things is like you use the naked eye and you look up and then at the sky and it just seems like it's quite static, placid, constant. But you have to think like we're constantly being bombarded by a huge thermonuclear reactor. 
all the yep, time. That's one way to put it. Yeah, all the day, every day, like plasma is being thrown at us, all that sort of good stuff. Like a steady stream of particles blows away from the sun uh, at about eight hundred thousand to five million miles per hour. And carries millions of tons of matter into space every second. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Again, the sun, just massive. It's just a massive just explosion <laughs> all the time. One of the things that they've looked at in the Helios physics is could solar wind power Earth? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So well, because what are they saying? Solar wind is a stream of charged particles that heads out, you know, towards us they move out towards earth and the rest of the planets and provide potential power to the entire earth according to some some research that was carried out recently and even though we refer to solar winds as winds it wouldn't provide energy in the way that you know wind turbines would it wouldn't like cause anything giant to turbines out in space yeah instead energy from solar winds could be collected by gigantic sails deployed in space between the sun and earth okay yeah so one proposal has been offered uh, by scientists at the Washington State University, um, and its potential is according to the team's calculations, 300 meters of copper wire attached to a two meter wide receiver in a 10 meter sail could generate enough power for a thousand homes. And a satellite with a thousand meter cable and a sail of 8,400 kilometers across placed at roughly the same audit would generate 1 billion billion gigawatts of power just a little bit yeah and the real challenge is how to get all the energy back to earth in order to power the planet that's what i was going to ask you <laughs> so one idea is to use a concentrated laser beam to send the energy back to earth lasers it's always lasers <laughs> yep um Unfortunately, there'd be millions of miles between the satellite and the Earth's target, making it difficult for the laser beam to reach the planet without widening or losing energy. I say energy, any, like, whatever, if it's one billion, billion gigawatts of power, then, you know, you could lose some. <laughs> like, yeah, mar marginal loss. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's likely Imagine if you just target. slightly miss the receiver, though, and just blow a hole in Earth. Yeah. So, <laughs> I... If a space elevator could be created, this could be easier. For those that don't know what a space elevator is, it's a huge elevator that starts, you know, planet side and goes all the way out into the atmosphere. Yeah. It's very sci-fi-esque, but you could potentially use that to then, you know, get into space and in and out of space easier. You could transport it down. I, I had this thought years ago. As a child, I thought of this whole, like, big sail in space. And I was like, you could just run a really big cable. But then I think the radiation given off by the cable transporting 1 billion billion gigawatts of power could be too much might just set the earth's atmosphere on fire yeah also imagine like the sails have probably got to be in a constant place whilst the earth's rotating like if that just yeah. like snagged on the earth and then just starts winding up like a ball of yarn that's bad yeah that's why you would put it at like one of the poles i reckon Oh yeah, just ask Santa. Be like, oh, can we just steal your North Pole? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not like an unpopulated area. Like, there's nothing wrong. With it. I think it's a good. I think it's a good idea. That's true. All right. Um, yeah, I just don't know about having like a loose wire attached to Earth to something in space is like the best way to do it. I don't see why not. I mean, I can't tell you why. I just, yeah. But transporting and maintaining that, right, if something goes wrong, would mm -hmm. be the main thing. I'd imagine you'd end up with, like, a crew or at least robots or something at that point who can maintain or transport batteries. Isn't that... There's a movie like that, and people going on the rig, and the rig explodes. Um, Can't even remember. The rig? <laughs> Can't remember what it is. Uh, is it in space? Uh, yeah, it's an upper atmosphere, and then something goes wrong and it explodes. I think it's Tom Cruise. It's not gravity. No. Um. Oh, Brad Pitt. And is it Brad Pitt? I think that's what. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of another one. I think I'm thinking of Foundation because we're on space elevator. Okay. 
Um, but there is a Brad Pitt film where he is like an astronaut up on a rig and then it all like collides and they they all fall to earth and parachute semi-safely and then he gets sent out to Mars or something (laughs) Brad Pitt falls to Earth movie space Ad Astra it's called is it that could be that 2019 Uh, it's on Netflix or it was maybe it's on Amazon now Um, yeah that's exactly what I was thinking of yeah, that's yeah, the one. I, that's, yeah, and it starts exploding above him, and he's like, yeah. oh, flick the flick the breaker, and try to try and save the people below him, and he falls off, and, and then he falls off. Um, but yeah, okay. Ad Astra Foundation, two great sci-fi things. Go watch those, and you'll understand uh, what we're on about. Yeah, space lifts, space rigs, all the good stuff. All right. What other space weather things are happening these days? Oh, I've actually watched Ad Astra, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good. Is that where he goes to find his father? Yeah. Father! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really good, actually. Yeah, because the bit where they're like, there's like a a moon buggy uh, section where they're like like shooting space guns at different people on, on different moon... Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's it didn't hit as hard as I thought it would in terms of like popularity wise. Yeah, um, but I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was yeah. good, worth a watch for sure. Worth a watch. Uh, so is Silent Sea. If you're into these kinds of things, it is a Korean drama action series on Netflix. Right. Top tier. And uh, oh. yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Korean, they got some, uh, really some, recommend. Good, some good some good series coming up. Oh they do. Yeah. Like a Tony Woo. I don't know if anyone likes that. Uh I don't think I know that one. Yeah, I haven't seen a Tony Woo. Uh, I haven't so uh, no. I've heard of it maybe. Autistic uh woman who is an attorney. And the trials okay. and tribulations of that. Well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Because um, her name's Woo something Woo, I think. Because her name okay. is the same frontwards as it is backwards. And that's part of like her one of her things that she has to say whenever she says her name. is like race car, something else. as any Woo. Okay. Yeah. Fair. All right. I'll check that out for sure. Extraordinary uh, Attorney Wu. Sorry, apologies. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I have heard of that then. Yeah. Yeah. Because the name is Wu Young Wu. She's backwards. <laughs> She's got a fixation of whales. Well, you know, loves all things oh, well then. So I thought you would absolutely love it, mate. I've got to get on it. Yeah. For sure. All right. And it's all like I'll do that. small attorneys fight big corporations to try and who are trying to like cut up countryside and stuff. It's good. 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 was oh, right up my alley then, really. <laughs> yeah. We should get her on the whole UN high seas treaty thing. Yeah, you should. She she knows her stuff. Apart from it's only she only currently knows um local law. So Korean law. Okay. Well we we can expand. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes, for long <laughs> enough. Time to get back we to have... the, the, the what do we move on to next? We've got we've got some astrobiology. I'm always keen for some astrobiology. Yeah, you wanna do some astrobiology? We can go do some of that. We can see what that's about. Okay. Well, um, what is it, Tom? Well, in a broad sense, it's a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a bit of a cop-out. Uh, well, it's not as bad as dark matter and dark energy about not... It's just astrobiology, I guess, is the field that wants to try and understand the origin, evolution, and distribution of life in the universe. Yes. So... Obviously, as far as we know so far, and if you listen to last episode, um, you may understand some of the reasons that, you know, we've tried to search for other life, but we just haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. But what could life look like? Where is it likely to appear? What conditions are needed? And if such parameters are met, what factors may... Um, 
control the evolution of life somewhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a really, it's an odd concept, but it works kind of usually something to sleep to. There's a series, maybe a second series now, called Alien Worlds on Netflix. And the entire concept is it's like a documentary, but just potentially exploring what life could look like in different systems on different planets. Mm -hmm. Um, Completely made up, but with pure scientific backing from people in the astrobiological field. So in that sense, is kind of true. You know, like the dinosaur documentaries you get. It's like that, but for stuff we don't know exists yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, really interesting. Watch. For sure. Um, but astrobiology kind of skirts m- a few main areas. Um, but I don't know what you're you're planning on diving into, so I wouldn't want to step on toes. Yeah. So what, what have you got to look at oh, here? A little tidbit. Astrobiology yeah. was actually formerly known as exobiology. Oh, okay. Yeah. Was there a reason for the name change? Um, they, they didn't give one, but uh, yeah. Okay. I think they wanted to be more specific with it, more being like astro. Yeah, yeah. You're allowed to include more things then, I guess. Exo yeah. is just off. Uh, I guess exoplanets are out of solar system. That would be, but. Mm-hmm. Asteroids, everything, anything and everything. Everything and everything. But mainly there are four main things we're going to focus on. Okay. And that is astronomy, biology, astroecology, well, that's and astro- astrogeology. So which one do you want first, right. mate? Which one do you want to dip into first? Oh, um... Let's start astronomy, and then we can build up to the okay. more theory of mind stuff. Yeah, so most astronomy-related astrobiology research falls into a category of extrasolar planets, or exoplanet detection. The hypothesis being that if life arose on Earth, then it could arise on other planets with similar characteristics. If you want more about that, go to our previous episode. And to that end, a number of instruments designed to detect Earth-sized exoplanets have been considered. Most notably, NASA's Terrestrial Planet Finder, the TPF, and ESA's Darwin programs, both of which have been cancelled. Sad times. NASA launched the, the Kepler mission in March 2009, and the French Space Agency launched the Carrot or Corot space mission in 2006. Also, several less ambitious ground based efforts are currently also underway. The goal yeah. of these missions is not only to detect Earth sized planets, but also to detect direct, det- directly detect light from the planets so that it may be studied spectroscopically through a spectroscope. <laughs> spectroscopically? Yeah. Okay. Like so that's imagine, really imagine you have got like a spectroscope, then yeah. after the E of a spectroscope, you put Cali on it. So it's spectroscopically. Okay. Spectroscope spectros why can't my mouth make that word? <laughs> spectroscopically. Spectroscopically. Cool. Um, yeah, fantastic one. That's yeah, I remember so there used to be a citizen science program where you could, anyone could just go to uh, the Exoplanet website. I think it was NASA at the time. Maybe it was the Darwin Project, which was ESA. Mm-hmm. And they would train you up for a little bit and then show you a graph, a spectra graph. <laughs> Look at this graph. And then it'd be like, okay, uh, is there planets here? And basically what they were doing is they were aiming telescopes at stars and measuring yeah. the light intensity. Because when an object moves in front of a star, even if it's tiny in comparison, the amount of light coming from that star changes. So mm-hmm. basically, that's a way to detect exoplanets. And you'd go through loads of data and you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is an exoplanet. No, this isn't. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty sure that's still up. So people want to go and uh, find some exoplanets. You can. But the spectro actually at graphic side of things is really interesting because it allows them to determine atmospheric composition. So what you hinted on there, Mitch, about um, 
whether these exoplanets can actually play host to life. Mm-hmm. If a planet moves in front of a star and light passes through the atmosphere, you can compare that to the light that didn't pass through the atmosphere. And by looking at the different peak frequencies that arrive in your spectrographic analysis, you can determine what compounds the light passed through in the atmosphere. Mm, yeah. So you can tell it, say, there's oxygen there, or there's water there, or if it's carbon, or absolutely no atmosphere at all. These are things that the scientists can use to study planets that are light years away, hundreds, thousands of light years away, but we can still determine what their atmosphere looks like, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Wicked cool. Yeah. Oh, I. Well, I would, I would go more, but yeah, kind of covered it there, mate. Um, oh, I just like it's called apologies. planetary spectra. Oh, that's cool. That's what it was named. That's like the the spectrometer data that comes off of it. It's called spectra. Ah, oh, I remember doing something like that in chemistry mm-hmm. at school. Did we ever do that? Uh, we used a spectrometer, I think, but not for like detecting planets. Well, that that, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to tech chemistry. Today we're going to be looking for exoplanets. <laughs> yeah, in a pu- in a public school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very much yeah, doubt no, it. Not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. Not a chance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other astronomical things astrobiologists do? Biology. Straight up bio- biology, mate. Straight it's up biology. Called, it's not even called like astrobiology. Oh, the whole thing's called astrobiology. That's why it's just called biology. Because uh, that'd be confusing. An element of astrobiology is astrobiology. Um, but, yeah. What's biology? biology. <laughs> wow. In this, in this instance. Good question. Uh, so, in this is they can't really you know do biology that well because of you know can't get examples from these these planets but uh biology cannot state that a process or phenomenon being mathematically possible has to exist forcibly in extraterrestrial bodies so biologists specify what is speculative and what is not so the discovery of extremer files organisms able to survive in extreme environments became a core research element for astrobiologists as they are important to understand four areas in the limits of life in planetary context. The potential for panspermia, which is the forward contamination due to human exploration ventures. Oh, is this when like, we take... Yeah, we've spoken about this before. Like, if imagine you're going to an island on Earth and yeah. you take yeah, yeah, yeah. rats with you. Ballasts um, as well. Yeah, so you're you're introducing an invasive species to an island, but imagine that on the planetary scale. Let's say we go to Mars, and we don't know what's there, but we bring like E. coli with us, and yeah. then a year later we realise we've killed all of the natural uh, bacteria because they've never interacted with E. coli before, and it killed yeah. them all. That would that would suck. That would be pretty devastating. Okay. Ethically. Ethically, yeah. <laughs> Ethically, um, not great. Yeah. So it, it looks towards that and like how it would work. So panspermia, from the Greek pan, which means all, and spermia, which is seed, is the hypothesis that life exists throughout the universe, distributed by space dust, matter, asteroids, comets, planetoids, and also by spacecrafts carrying unintended contamination by microorganisms. Distributions may have occurred spanning galaxies and so may not be restricted to the limited scale of our solar system. So essentially he's looking at the reverse of that. Okay, not us causing yeah. it, but like trying to track it. So the, the, the panspermia hypothesis proposes that microscopic life forms that can survive the effect of space, such as extremophiles, can be trapped in debris, ejected into space after collisions between planets and small solar system bodies that harbour life, such as the moon so the moon technically have this after the giant impact from Thea I think is the name of what impacted it I think it's what it's called Um, 
So some organisms may travel dormant for extended amounts of time before colliding randomly with other planets and intermingling with protoplanetary disks and under certain uh, ideals impact circumstances, so into a body of water, for example, the ideal conditions on the planet's surface, it may be possible that a surviving organism could be active and begin colonizing their new environment. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ifs ifs here, right? (laughs) There's like, somehow a tardigrade has to get into space, survive multiple asteroid level collisions, and survive in a planetary proto-disc for a while. Uh, That's many millions of years it has to go through there. Mm-hmm. But maybe not impossible if these things are happening on on a quicker basis. And one astrolog- astrobiological breakthrough that happened, I think it was last year, mm-hmm. towards the end of last year, they analyzed the contents of an asteroid and found that it contained every single building block that we think you might need for life on a single yeah. asteroid. Um which is pretty big news and some people even go as far to say that maybe earth was seeded with these things from asteroid impacts Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what led to the formation of life here so pretty exciting yeah exciting stuff exciting indeed all Mm -hmm. right that's biology. Yep. They got astroecology. See, that sounds exciting. <laughs> so I astro- want to be an astroecologist. Uh, it's not too late, mate. It's not too late. You can specialize after you talk to them. Yeah, specialize again, shall I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So astroecology concerns the interaction of life with space environments and resources in planets, asteroids, and comets. On a larger scale, astroecology concerns resources for life about stars and galaxies the cosmological future it attempts to quantify future life in space addressing this area of astrobiology experimental astroecology investigates resources in planetary soils using actual space materials and meteorites the results suggest that martian and carboncaceous chondrite materials can support bacteria algae and plants such as asparagus and potatoes with high soil fertilites Results the results support that life could have survived in early aqueous asteroids and on similar materials imported to Earth by dust, comets, and meteorites, and that such asteroid materials can be used as soil for future space colonies. On the largest okay. scale, cosmoecology concerns life in the universe Sounds over cosmological cooler. times. The main source of energy may be red giant stars, white and red dwarf stars sustaining life for a hundred to a thousand years. Astroecologists suggest that their mathematical models may quantify the potential amounts of future life in space, allowing a comparable expansion in biodiversity, potentially leading to diverse intelligent life forms. What astroecology is. So it's, it's less about how other species might survive but more about how we might survive in the future yeah and looking at energy expenditure and deposits yeah potatoes that's really cool that last sentence you said there is pretty wild like what if we accidentally left rats on mars or something and then just over time they became as sentient as us yeah like rat human (laughs) things yeah wandering around essentially yeah that's pretty wild. Yeah. But I can fully see that kind of thing happening. Okay, we're going to use this planet as like a outer rim, like outpost, and then the animals just go wild and, you know, you end up with like avatar situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Contain the little base. <laughs> Small little base, yeah. That'd be, that'd be cool. It would be great. That'd be a hoot. That would be a hoot. Hoot and a half. Okay, well, I had no idea astro and cosmoecology existed, and uh, maybe I found new aspirations for... <laughs> it's for, in life. For, yeah, in life there. That's, that's cool. <laughs> uh, imagine you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a cosmoecologist. It just sounds good. Imagine that on a business well. card. I don't 
don't know, like how that'll land. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> like, Maybe over most people's yeah. uh, in average conversation, it's not where you end up, is it? Normally, no. <laughs> okay, and there was a, there was a final section to this. There was a final finale. Geology. Finale. Ah, okay. Astrogeology. Astrogeology is a planetary science discipline concerning with the geology of celestial bodies, such as planets and their moons, asteroids, comets, and meteorites. The information gathered by this discipline allows the measure of a planet's or natural satellite's potential to develop sustain life or planetary habitability. An additional discipline of astrogeology is geochemistry, which involves the study of chemical compositions of the Earth and other planets, chemical processes and reactions that govern the composition of rocks and soils, the cycle of matter and energy and their interaction with the hydrosphere and the atmosphere of the planet. Specializations, if you want to... So, okay, so you specialize in, like, space. <laughs> then you specialize in, like, astrobiology. Then you specialize down to astrogeology. And then you specialize down even more to cosmos chemistry, biochemistry, or organic geochemistry, specifying in astrogeology. That's pretty wild. <laughs> I wonder though if like that's the like whether they're geologists that happen to fall into uh like astro biology. Yeah, it's not like a one road leads to Rome. I'm sure there's like no. there's like many ways in. So in my field, you know, working with marine mammals and things like that or research around it, we often just have a lot of physicists who end up working with whales because they already really understand how sound propagates through various mm -hmm. mediums. So they're, okay, the animal behavior side of things is something you can pick up as you go along. But if you're already really good at acoustics, then it just sets you up so nicely to be able to work with these kinds of animals. Um, mm -hmm. So people end up coming into this sphere really random routes as well. So I imagine, like, just imagine like being a kid, oh, yeah, I want to be an astrobiologist. Like what route do you take? <laughs> all, all roads really lead to Rome. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what other stuff are they looking at then? These astrogeologists. So things like, you know what? I, I don't even know. I don't, I don't <laughs> I'm just so far like down the rabbit hole with this. I um, imagine like if... You're like, okay, this planet, like Mars, has this composition. What is the likelihood that it yeah. can actually sustain life? Right? Okay, we've got our soil stuff here. And as you said, they're, they're testing different things with different soils. But, like, with intervention, they can make it work. Yeah. But what, if we can look at a planet over there, we, can, we can't get a soil sample from it, but we kind of know its composition from spectrographic analysis. So we can try and recreate that here and just see what does or doesn't grow. Yes, that's great. But also, not just a crow, it's more like um, organic functional groups composed of hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Okay. And a host of like metals, such as iron, magnesium, zinc. Like, so they're, they're checking that for sense. that to see if that. So, that, if you've got those as like key materials in your soup, it provides like an enormous diversity for chemical reactions necessarily to catalyze by living organisms so that's what they need it's like the soup what they call it primordial the soup. soup primordial yeah, the, soup the primordial soup um so they essentially looking for the building blocks of life anywhere which is similar to those on there on earth okay that makes sense and yeah. seeing if there's a certain situation where something can happen mm. indeed Imagine just like having the building blocks of life and then you're running some experiments and you manage to like create something. I yeah. presume that hasn't happened. No, not yet. I presume Have they you, haven't did, been able to do that. Did you watch, in the end, the Netflix episode on Infinity? I've tried to watch it like three or four times and I keep falling asleep. <laughs> not oh, because it's bad, me. but because I watch things when I go to sleep. And I'm like, yeah, I need to watch not. this when I'm awake. Um, so I'm saving it for when I just have some spare time. Yeah. It's not It's not when you want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, existential dread so into bed. There was uh, an argument posed by 
someone trying to be like, if like, who was saying, even if you had infinite amount of time, whatever I'm holding wouldn't turn into like this air. There wouldn't be air here that would just turn into um, like uh, a specific type of food. And he was using that as like a why does time matter kind of thing. And I was like, well, okay. you need to watch this episode because eventually, if you had infinite amount of time, it would because it all breaks down into like its base forms starts exploding and if you have an amount of time there could be one potential future where that does happen where by pure randomness and pure infinity that whatever it breaks down into and explodes into could potentially make that apple because that's what they use they say if yeah, you put an apple in a box was... and it will break down into like all this primordial soup forms there could be a potential for it to turn back into an apple eventually by pure yeah. in, infinite time. It's like um, entropy, right? So, okay, things move towards disorder, but that doesn't stop there being the chance of order arising. Like, if I get a pack of cards and just throw them onto the ground, what's yeah. the chance they'll land in the structure of a house of cards? Mm-hmm. Pretty tiny. But not impossible. It could happen. It just need to yeah. do it an infinite amount of times, um, and it should happen at least once, right? So yeah, all right. Get, how about them apples? How about them apples? <laughs> yep. All right. Um, anything else to mention? No, that, anything that's else you want to tackle before we get to the end of the? No, not not in three minutes, mate. No, yeah, that's fair. Do you know what? Why don't we just go into black holes? No, black <laughs> holes right now. Three minutes in and out. Let's go. No, no. We'll save that for uh, next episode. Maybe we'll be doing black holes, dark matter, dark energy. What yes. is it? Or what isn't it? Because oh, don't. Maybe we just don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe we, we don't. Just don't know. Yeah, it's that. I'll All try right. and find that that quote about the missile. And the missile knows where it is by knowing where it isn't. And if you subtract where it isn't from where it is, it knows where it's going. I'll find that quote. Okay. Because essentially that is what it is. Yeah, that's fair. We'll get there eventually. We'll figure out what it isn't so much. We'll know what it has to be. Yeah. And if that makes no sense, join us next week as we elongate that out for an hour. (laughs) Yes. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that'll bring us to a wrap then don't forget to share this with your friends families co-workers uh dogs plants anything in between if you want more information you can head on over to twitter and tiktok at info entropy pod instagram information entropy pod and of course whichever directory you're listening to this on right now you can give us a like a rating a share uh you know just leave it on repeat in the background we don't mind <laughs> helps us out absolutely yeah. massively and thank you very much in advance um so yeah anything uh you want to shout out on the airwaves can i can actually do the the proper quote for the missile yeah absolutely so the quote is missile knows where it is at all times it knows this because it knows where it isn't by subtracting where it is from where it isn't or where it isn't from where it is which is greater it obtains the difference or deviations that that is an actual explanation for a guidance system or a guidance wow. subsystem. Oh, so that's not even like satire. That's just no, no. This is this doing. is like an actual quote from like when they're describing. So the next quote is: the guidance subsystem uses deviations to generate corrective commands to drive the missile from the position from where it is to a position from where it isn't, and arriving at a position where it wasn't, it now is. Subsequently, the position where it is is now the position it wasn't, and it follows this position where it was, and now the position that it isn't. In the event of the position that it is now not the position that it wasn't, the system has required a variation. That's how like it's trying to explain how this guidance system works, but it's doing so in the most complex manner <laughs> in the world. And I, I sent you the, the the link where you can because it's a, a voiceover of a guy speaking about it in like the nineteen seventies, I think it was. Um, yeah. That's just like being obtuse. That's like you're trying to gatekeep how that works. Like you, yeah. there's no need to explain it like that. Yeah. 
The variation right, well, being the difference um, between where the missile is and where it wasn't. The variation is considered to be a significant factor too, maybe corrected by the GAE. However, the missile must know where it was. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Yeah. Cool. So it's, well, it's we'll full of <laughs> if you know what copy and that would be is. the best copy pasta yeah yeah all right and uh if you stuck around through that thanks <laughs> uh yeah catch you catch you peeps on the next one for the dark stuff the dark, dark stuff does, like, dark space dark holes dark matter dark energy and everything in between indeed or nothing peace peace